beginning in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would feed us with your word. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we know that that, that you tell us to, to long for the pure milk of the word, for by it, that's how we grow up into salvation. And Lord, we need to grow. We feel our weakness. Lord, we see our inconsistency. Lord, how... Uh, The the lack of resolve, how easily we fall to temptation. Lord, uh, and we see our lack of fruit, our lack of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Lord, we, we lack these things. And we want them to be consistent in our life so that we would be better witnesses of you and abide in you. So we pray that you'd use your word this morning to burn away the dross, that we might come away more pure and, with, and we might have our minds renewed uh, so that we would think clearly and worship you fully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that strikes me about gospel ministry, I would say it's, even, it's confusing to me, is how many of the Lord's most faithful servants, as they start to make progress in their ministry, they're immediately struck with significant opposition. Shortly after John Bunyan began preaching, he was thrown into jail and was there for 12 years because he wouldn't agree to stop preaching. Hudson Taylor, right after his ministry began to really take off in China, That same year in 1870, his son Samuel died in January. Then in July, his wife died. And two weeks earlier, their other son died. So three family members in just one year, right as it starts to take off. Shortly after arriving on Tana in the New Hebrides, John Payton lost his wife and his infant child to malaria. And then he himself was sickened, he says, 14 times severely with malaria. 
uh, our own missionaries, the farmers, right after they had committed their lives to becoming missionaries uh, to an unreached people group, they found out that their oldest child had a severe heart problem and probably wouldn't live past the age of 10. By God's grace, uh, she's still around and doing well. Uh, Their other child, three or four children later, Owen, uh, was born with Down syndrome, which has made it significantly more difficult for them to do their work as they're in a, in a, um, a frontier context. The uh, uh, other missionaries, the Burns, uh, right after turning down many lucrative offers, prestigious offers from seminaries and um, other institutions and committing himself to mission work amidst unreached people groups, uh, Evan lost his wife. And then, just months later, he finds out that he's going to lose a lot of financial support. I mean, you would think that God would make things easier on his servants as they begin to make strides in ministry. But it seems to me, at least, that the opposite seems to be frequently the case. That things just get harder as progress gets made. And I, I... want to know why is this? And Paul gives his answer in 2 Corinthians 4. We read this in our scripture reading this morning. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, God allows this opposition. He directs this opposition even as progress begins to be made so that we would not rely upon ourselves but upon Him and so that His power, His grace, His glory would shine all the more through us. It's not a mark of God's disfavor that we face opposition and difficulty in our lives. It's often a mark of His pleasure. And from the beginning of their missionary efforts, the apostles face regular opposition. Every place they go, it seems like, they face opponents, and frequently they're violently harassed. And we see the first of many opponents that they'll come across in Elemus the magician, who's the main figure in our text this morning. Very simple outline. Uh, Sergius Paulus, who is the proconsul, hears about their ministry and he seeks the word of God and they come to him in verses 6 through 7. And a man named Elymas, a false teacher, opposes their efforts in verse 8. And so he's confronted by the apostles in verses 9 and 11. And on account of that, a confrontation in judgment that comes upon him, Sergius Paulus says, believes in the word. Let's look first of all at that first point in the outline. Sergius Paulus seeks the word of God. Paul and Barnabas, again, are, are continuing their ministry strategy that we looked at last week in preaching to synagogues. They'd go into a town and they'd uh, get an invitation to preach in a synagogue because they were known teachers, particularly Paul as a, a well-trained rabbi under Gamaliel. And they would 
teach in the synagogue, and as they go to a new town, they teach in another synagogue, and they go throughout the whole island of Cyprus. They begin in Salamis in the northeast, and then they end up here in Paphos in the southwest. And that's where they find a man named Elymas Bar-Jesus. And he's described as being a magician and a Jewish false prophet. That's a very odd combination of terms. First, because uh, the word magician is, is actually where we get the word magon. It's where we get the term magi from, as in the wise men who followed the star from the east seeking Jesus. The magi were a class of Babylonian priests who were experts in astrology and fortune telling. And it's very odd that a Jew would be identified as a, as a magi. Again, that's because... This is a class of people who identified themselves, that were, that were a part of their greatest enemies, the Babylonians. Recall that the Babylonians were the ones who had destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed their whole way of worship. And this Jew is identifying with their religious leaders, calling himself a magi. And second, Jews were explicitly forbidden to engage in magic. In Deuteronomy 18, it says this in verse 10, There shall be not found among you anyone who burns a son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. That's like every form of magic is what it's conveying. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. So to put this in modern terms, to help us wrap our minds around it, for, for in the first century, for a Jew to be known as a magi would be like a, uh, coming across a Jewish imam in Palestine today. It's, it's, it's a contradiction in terms. And Elamis is further described as a false prophet. This is part of his practice of divination. And, and both Old Testament Jews and New Testament Christians are warned repeatedly to stay away from false prophets because they're going to deceive people by telling them exactly what they want to hear. That's how they dupe them. In fact, Jeremiah 23, this, this chapter is well worth our attention. But I'll just read a, a couple of verses. Jeremiah says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of Yahweh. They say continually to those who despise the word of Yahweh, it shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And Peter says that they do people by particularly appealing to their flesh. Second Peter 1, it says, but false prophets rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They're like the, the flatterer. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, they, they 
lay a net for people and they get caught up in their flattery and destroyed. Jesus warns of false prophets in his Sermon on the Mount. If you turn to me with me in Matthew to Matthew seven. Matthew seven, beginning at verse ten, Jesus says this about false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he tells people how they can know if a prophet is true or if they're a liar, a deceiver. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so despite their deceit and manipulation, false prophets are usually very effective in what they do. And Elemas in particular appears to be highly influential. For he has the ear of Sergius Paulus the proconsul of Cyprus. Now, a proconsul, you have to understand, it was a very high-ranking official in the ancient world. During the Roman Republic, uh, the, the government was run by two individuals, two consuls, who, who functioned more or less like presidents. But there was two of them, and they would hold power together for two years. And then when their time was up, they would become Proconsuls, those who were previously consuls. And so a, a consul again was like our office of a president, and so a proconsul would be like a former president. So Sergius Paulus was like a first century Barack Obama. And they could, proconsuls could maintain their authority as consuls if they left Rome, and they would go serve in the provinces, and in the provinces they were able to hold more or less absolute power over those provinces, both judicial power and military power. And so Luke remarkably describes Sergius Paulus as a man of intelligence or understanding. He was a wise individual. He was discerning. He was primarily interested in the truth. He wasn't just interested in being liked or being obeyed. He wanted to know the right thing to do. He was discerning. And so when he hears of this teaching of Paul and Barnabas, he beckons them to come because he wants to hear them teach from the Word of God. Which is specifically what it says. And so we should see here this wide open door that God has opened. Like they weren't seeking to create a ministry where they could uh, preach to the movers and shakers in the world. God opened up this door. They were just going about their business according to their original strategy, going into the synagogues and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And then moving on from town to town, synagogue to synagogue. And somehow or other, God opens this wide open door for them to preach to a proconsul. And this proconsul, again, would have been one of the, the leading members of uh, the senatorial Roman family. 
Roman families. But even as God presents this wide open door, He also allows opposition to continue as well. And that's what's highlighted in the next verse. Where Elymas opposes the word of God. It says, Elymas the magician, in verse 8, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And the specific way that Elymas opposes the apostles is he's trying to keep Sergius Paulus from believing. That's his aim. That's the ambition. He, he doesn't care about anything else, but he doesn't want Sergius Paulus to become a believer, a follower of God. And false teachers are like that. They will flatter you. They'll tell you what, they, what you want to hear. They'll, they'll stroke uh, you where you want to be stroked and scratch you where you want to be scratched, where those itches are. And it may seem like they have your interest in mind, but, but really they only want to use you. They want whatever benefit they think you might offer them. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be power, influence. But they don't care about you. What they care about is themselves or what you have to offer them. They want to use you. And their motives are evident when, like Elymas, they seek to undermine the apostles who are speaking the truth, who are trying to help people see the light. They're encouraging Sergius Paulus to listen to and obey the word of God. And false, false teachers, they don't want that. They don't want the truth. They don't want you to believe the truth. They're drawn to you, and not because they like you, but because they want to use you. But if you're drawn to the truth, you'll see through it. And they can't use you anymore. And so they'll tell you all manner of lies, undermining those who speak the truth or just flattering you, giving you what they think you want in order to lead you astray. And as shepherds and overseers, one of the things that we're, that, that is constantly on the back of our minds as, as people come into our church is, what is this person looking for? Why are they here? Are they here because they're seeking the word of God, because they want to grow, they want to be nourished, they love the truth? Or is there some other motive that's drawn them? The reality is we're not clairvoyant. We can't read people's hearts and minds. All we can do is talk to people. And slowly over time, people do begin to reveal what they want, what they're seeking by what they talk about, even what what their criticisms are or... Uh, even in their prayer requests or their expectations of others. In fact, it's not just elders, but we all need to be alert to false teachers. To others who would lead us astray through flattery and manipulation. And we need to recognize God didn't prevent the early church from facing such threats. In fact, He allows such threats to emerge so that it might be exposed who really is following Christ, who really wants to follow Christ and who is just tasting or just trying to see if this is something that they might gain some benefit from. And so God will allow false teachers to rise up to test 
and to even strengthen our resolve and our convictions and expose what we really believe and what we really want. And God allows Elymas to be raised up even in opposition to the apostles here. And so he's confronted in verses 9 through 11. It says Saul in verse 9, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. And you might notice that verse 9 is actually the point in the Bible where Saul, from here on out, is called Paul. And scholars, you know, debate why is this. Uh, most likely it's because Hellenistic Jews at that time uh, frequently had two names. They had their Jewish name, but they also had a, a Greek name as well. So John, for instance, was called Mark. Simon, Niger, Barsabas, Justice, and others. And so Paul, at this point, comes prominently forward as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Luke begins to refer to him in his Gentile name because that's where his ministry was primarily focused. He was becoming um, all things to all men and asked them to refer to him by his Gentile name. And it's interesting here that Paul takes the initiative in this conversation with Elmas and not Barnabas. Because it appears that Barnabas is actually the one that was selected to be the leader of this missionary venture. And the reason Paul takes the initiative, though, is not because he's vying for prominence, but because he thinks Barnabas is inadequate. The reason he takes the initiative is because he's the one that's filled by the Holy Spirit. Right? In his sovereignty... God the Holy Spirit chose Paul to confront Elymas. And he'll choose Paul to lead the church in the years ahead. And in this rebuke, it says, you'll notice, he fastened his eyes on him. He fixed his gaze on him. Now, preaching instructors will wax eloquent here on the the great importance of making eye contact when you're preaching. But I don't think the point is so much uh, that eye contact in public speaking is a, a good thing as much as the point being is that he focused all of his, all of his attention on Elymas. In other words, not on the crowd around, not on Sergius Paulus, but on Elymas. The Holy Spirit here is speaking through Paul directly to Elymas. And it's not an unusual occurrence for Christians who are caught up in some sin or or even unbelievers whom God is wanting to draw to himself to feel when they're hearing a, a sermon like that preacher is speaking directly to them. As if the week before as he was preparing his message, he was thinking about just that one individual and he's preaching to that person right now and without really anybody else in mind. And I think in some cases the preacher might not even know they're there. But God knows what they're going through. And he's fixing to deal with them. In those instances, typically it is God who is speaking through the preacher to the person because he wants that person to know something specific for him or her. And in the case of Charles Spurgeon's conversion... 
the preacher literally did single him out. And I love this story, so I figured I'd share it with you. Some of you might be familiar with it. But Spurgeon himself writes in one of his books, he says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until that time. And had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship, I turned down a side street and came into a, a little primitive Methodist church. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it's well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He said that, actually. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, from Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I, and it gave me a glimmer of hope in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your finger or your foot. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool And yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And when he had managed to spend about ten or so minutes, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. And he continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, 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 you have nothing to do but look and live. And I love that story because it just shows the power of the word, but also the power of a stern rebuke. And when the Holy Spirit singles Elemis out here, he gives him an even sharper rebuke. And one that I think we should all take notice of. Look at verse 10. It says, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Actually, here in this text, we have the descriptions, the the, the characteristics of a false teacher. Deception, fraud, they're unregenerate, enemies of righteousness, they twist the truth. You'll notice the first word, deceit, It, it means to... Catch something with bait, like a fisherman or a a hunter. And the idea behind the word fraud has to do with slickness, smoothness, like a card shark. Its it's root carries the idea of being smooth in deception. Paul is essentially calling Elemis out as a con artist. And there are lots of Christian con artists today. Turn on TBN. 
Or if you, you want the details, just listen to Justin Peters and his podcast, his YouTube channel. He carefully and judicially exposes their chicanery. Next, Paul calls him a, a son of the devil. Now, that sounds bad until we consider that every person before they come to believe in Jesus Christ is a son of Satan. Paul is playing on Elemus's Bar Jesus name, which means son of Jesus. And he's making clear that he is actually a son of Satan. And the Apostle John knows how we can know if a person is a child of Satan or a child of God. In 1 John 3.10 it says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And by his acts, Elemas is showing he is not a child of God. He is a son of Satan. Paul also calls him an enemy of all righteousness. Notice, not just, not just unrighteous, but an enemy of righteousness. And actually in the Greek, there is this triple use of all in this verse. And his point is that Elemas is totally depraved. And he ends with this devastating rhetorical question. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20 gives this warning. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And I could add, who call girls boys and boys girls. Who call slavery freedom and freedom slavery. Who call injustice justice and justice injustice. Who call for disorder wherever they find order. They twist truth and morality as if it's some sort of game. And we need to know that, that politics is not the issue when we see this happening. This is not about politics. This is about demonic influence. We see it here with Elemas. Satan, Satan's primary endeavor is to twist the truth, to twist reality so that people wouldn't see clearly, so that they wouldn't come to believe. There is a demonic agenda very much alive in our country, and we can't be duped about it. We live in a place and time where it just seems like it's a national pastime to, to twist what is good into evil and evil into good. And we see here that God will call such nonsense into account. And we, we see here his judgment. Verse 10 is the Holy Spirit's indictment against Elemas, and verse 11 is the judgment. It says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. That, that phrase comes from the book of Exodus. It's figurative of the plagues that God poured out upon the Egyptians in judgment. It's, it's like they're getting a fistful of God in their face. That's the idea. 
The judgment that comes upon Elymas is that he's immediately struck with blindness. And, and the judgment, this judgment in particular, is, is very purposeful. It's actually prophetic. If, if you turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi, or sorry, yeah, Micah, chapter 3, Micah, chapter 3, it says this in verse 5. Micah 3, read verses 5 and 6. Thus says Yahweh concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. And that's why Elemis loses his sight. And despite the severity of the judgment, we also need to see the mercy of God here. Because Paul says this blindness is only going to be for a time. It's not permanent. Moreover, the judgment and the wording in verse 11 harkens back to the judgment of Paul in Acts 9 that led to his conversion. In Acts 9.8, it says this, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. This man's going undergoing the same judgment Paul faced. And though it doesn't state explicitly that Elymas came to know the Lord, I think it deliberately leaves that door wide open for us. And so while this apostate Jew is sent away in blindness with the hope of eventually regaining his sight, the Gentile ruler receives spiritual sight and he believes. In verse 12 it says, The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And it's noteworthy that the proconsul believes when he saw what had happened, but it doesn't say that he was amazed by the miracle. What amazed him? It's the teaching of the Lord. It was, God, it was the message. It was the truth. It was the truth that drew his heart. That's what opened his eyes to see. It wasn't the miracle. It was the Word. Because it's the Word that actually causes us to be born again. We hear the truth and we believe and we, we recognize that is true. That is the Word of God. And so the point is not that Paul and Barnabas are amazing teachers, but what they taught was amazing because it's the Word of God. Sergius Paulus sees it for what it is. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, speaking of Thessalonians, he says, You received the Word of God which you heard from us, and you accepted it not as the Word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's one of the clearest marks of a person truly being born again. They recognize that the Bible is true, every word of it. And they believe it more than they believe their own heart, than their own emotions. And they trust themselves to God by submitting themselves to his word. 
And Jesus actually makes this point clear in his parable, the sower. If you turn with me in Mark chapter four. A well-known parable, but it's helpful to look at the wording and the, the influence of the word in the parable of the sower. Mark chapter four. Beginning in verse 14, Jesus explaining the parable, he says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. That's what Elymas was trying to do. But God wouldn't let him. Verse 16, and there are the ones that sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, of word, uh, hear the word immediately receive it with joy. Sounds good, but they have no root in themselves and endure only for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. His point is the ones who are truly saved are the ones who want the Word because they realize what it really is. It's the Word of God. It's, it's the instructions from their Creator who loves them, who gave His Son up for them that they might be saved. They recognize it as true and they believe all of it. And therefore they obey it. The missionary Adoniram Judson once had a Buddhist teacher whom he was reaching out to declare that he could not believe that Jesus suffered the death of the cross because no king would ever allow their son to suffer such indignity. And Judson responded this way, Well, therefore, you're not a disciple of Christ. A true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it's in the book. His pride has yielded to the divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the word of God. You can know a true believer and are they willing to trust and obey the word and swallow their pride? Do they believe the word more than they believe themselves? And the conversion of Sergius Paulus is particularly remarkable because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But Sergius Paulus was. One of the most prestigious families in all the ancient world. In commenting upon this scripture, Selena Hastings, who is the Countess of Huntington, good friend of George Whitfield and John Wesley, said this, Blessed be God, it does not say any mighty, any noble. It says many mighty, many noble. I owe my salvation to the letter M. M. 
Although there are few rich and famous people who come to Christ, we see here a God who is merciful, who still has his elect, his elect even amongst them, who he's drawing to himself, men such as Sergius Paulus. We can give thanks for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a respecter of persons. That you save even the most wretched sinners. The most hard-hearted of unbelievers. Murderers, adulterers, child molesters, cannibals. Witches, magicians. Lord, we thank you that you saved each one of us. Lord, we know that it wasn't our own effort. It wasn't our own insight. It wasn't our own wisdom that brought us to yourself. It was you and your mercy opening our ears to believe. And Father, I pray that you would be as equally merciful, the same mercy that you've shown to us who believe you would show to anyone here who does not yet believe. You would help them to see their need for you. You would help them to see that your word is true. It is trustworthy. You would help them to see that their greatest problem is their slavery to sin, their own pride, their own self-worship, that that's what they need freedom from. And that you would help them to see that that freedom can only be found through faith in Christ. And that you would open their eyes to trust you and to believe in you and to follow you. We pray these things in Christ's name.